0: Welcome to the Midside, where if there's too many people in the mosh pit, we don't fucking go in it. I'm your host, Justin Lesneski, the Hopeful Bromantic, and I retroactively and proactively denounce anything anyone has ever said and ever will say on this show. Of course, when I say anyone today, I, I mean only me, because I am going solo on this episode, Christine and I uh, have things to do after the Patriots game, and because of the the time difference between myself and William, it it isn't fair of me to ask William to, to wake up this early to record. So releasing this episode, you are listening to this episode on a Monday morning, but I am recording it early on a Sunday morning, early for the West Coast especially. This would be super early for the West Coast. So after the Patriots game, Christine and I have an appointment to talk to somebody who's a representative for a housing complex that's being built around here, a condo association or a townhouse association, one of those two things. Uh, We're we're looking in the area to see what's around because, of course, one of the reasons I moved to Orlando was to buy a place to live. And the thing that is absolutely insane to me about all of this is anything that goes on the market right now, Anything that goes on the market within a couple days has a couple of bids, a couple of offers over asking price. It's literally almost impossible to buy something unless you're super stretching your budget or you're buying something that is really below the quality of what you can afford. Now, the argument is going to be, well, you can't afford what, what the market provides. Yes, certainly, certainly. But what I'm saying is, what I believe I deserve. It it puts us in a place where it's better to rent. It's better to rent. And, you know, with the minimum wage in Florida is going to go up to $15 in the next five years or so. And with all the inflation that's going to hit because of all those stimulus checks, the cost of places is going to continue to rise, is going to continue to rise. The value of my dollar is going to continue to go down. And we are not the only people... In this situation, it's so interesting to me that other people have been like, oh, yeah, when I moved to Florida a couple of years ago, I was talking about this is somebody else saying this. Obviously, they were telling me they were talking about thinking about buying and they were looking around and they kept getting outbid on everything. So they just sort of gave up. They just sort of gave up. That's I don't know. That's that's kind of fucked up to me. Like maybe we need to build more housing. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, just just a, just a small thought, but but that's what we're doing after watching the Patriots game this afternoon. Christine and I are going to go do that, so that's why this is a solo episode. Uh, just a small thought. I have much more interesting things to talk about, much more interesting than the the angst and ennui of the housing of millennials, right? The um, Sunrise Skater Kids have a song about homeless millennials, talking about the situation that. I just described, but you know, even that song kind of annoys me. So I, I'm not going to bore you with that. I'm going to talk about a bunch of other stuff. Uh, talk about a little bit about V for Vendetta and Guy Fox. Talk about the Fountainhead. Talk about uh, football. Going to have some football conversation here. Going to talk about getting a census letter from the U.S. Census Department and then tagging them on Instagram. And then I'm going to review Army of Thieves finally. And holy shit, Netflix recently. Netflix has been hitting recently. Army of Thieves, Red Notice comes out soon. Uh, they've got a couple other movies that are interesting that I can't remember off the top of my head. One about... Um, one with Jimmy Yang. I can't remember the name, but Jimmy Yang from Silicon Valley. Catfishes a girl. And then the guy that he was catfishing as is there. And she, the girl he catfished, Jimmy Yang catfish tries to date the guy. But she starts acting like she has interest, she doesn't. So that movie looks like it could be an interesting discussion of, you know, where's the line of catfishing? I've always wondered that myself, the idea that people put forward a certain front in the beginning of relationships and then later they reveal who they really are. Is that not just another version of catfishing? So that movie looks interesting. But yeah, Netflix has been hitting recently. I mean, I'd much rather watch Army of Thieves and Red Notice than go to the theaters and see The Eternals. People are probably wondering what I think about that. I'm not going to see it. I don't have any interest in it. And everything I'm hearing about it, even the Man of Steel comparisons, I, I don't think philosophically, ideologically, it took inspiration. The director Zhang took inspiration from Man of Steel. I think it was just, oh, approaching it in this intellectual way, this cohesive, integrated manner is what she took. Because I don't think she's an idiot. I just think, you know, the culture she's from and buying into naturalism, that's the perspective she has. So I literally, I have zero interest in the Eternals. So if somebody else wants to see it and drop a review in the Discord, then that would be great. That's the first thing I want to talk about is is something that happened uh, in the Discord. Something that happened in the Discord this week. So this week, of course, was the beginning of November. So that means that I believe it was Wednesday. No, 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 it wasn't Wednesday. Friday. Friday was the 5th of November. So, of course, somebody put in the video from V for Vendetta. Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder treason and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. And I, I screwed up that line re- reading, right? I, it should say gunpowder, and I didn't pronounce the D, so it sounded like the second time I said it, I said gunpowder. But that was dropped in the, in the Discord because... You know, libertarian leanings, free market leanings, small government leanings. Anytime you think of that, you think of things like V for Vendetta. That V for Vendetta, the fifth the of November, that is a very libertarian small government anarchist holiday. Because Guy Fox in that movie especially rebelled against fascism. Rebelled against fascism. Now, somebody else replied in the chat and said in the discord and, and talked about how Guy Fox was a theocrat and how disappointed he was to learn that. But, but here's the deal. Here's the deal. We need to remember the purpose of stories when we're looking at things. And look, I'm not the biggest fan of V for Vendetta. I'm not the biggest fan. I think, it, I think it has a decidedly left wing bent. I mean, that movie has a character that's supposed to be Rush Limbaugh, And they just completely go after Rush Limbaugh for his pill addiction that he had that around the time the movie came out, he was known for that, that the news had broken about that. So they completely go after him. And everything in that movie completely goes after right wing things as if the right wing is the only ones who are capable, are the only ones who are capable of fascism. So I'm not a big fan of V for Vendetta to begin with but it's important to remember the power of these stories and the purpose of these stories. You're selecting parts of reality. Now that doesn't mean the other parts of reality didn't happen, but it means the story itself, the interpretation itself has a purpose. And the purpose of V for Vendetta is not to talk about the religious aspects of it. Everybody was religious at the time when, when Guy Fox and the other Catholics were rebelling against the Church of England. The Church of England was the Church of England. It was it was different types of theocrats fighting over control, fighting over who could essentially oppress each other. That doesn't make it right, but we have to look at it in the historical context. You know, it's the same thing when we talk about the settlers coming to America, right? The pilgrims coming to America. We try to look at it through today's lens and go, oh, well, they're immoral for what they did. Well, yeah, if we went to other countries and started hanging, handing out smallpox blankets nowadays, that'd be fucking terrible. And it was terrible back then. But we have to look at it in the historical context to understand it and then to understand the myths or stories we tell about it. And the myths or stories we tell in V for Vendetta is anti-government, anti-fascism. And that's, that's a good thing, and that's a worthwhile story. So when people are saying, remember, remember the 5th of remember, November, the gunpowder treason and plot, I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Saying, oh, well, he was a theocrat is not a reason for it to be forgot. The reason to remember it is it stands as a reminder of... Being vigilant, as he was a vigilante, being vigilant in the face of an overreaching government. Sorry, I had to let the, the, the cat out of the closet there. Sorry for that pause. Uh, and, and I think in today's day and age, especially with everything we've talked about over the last year, that's an important thing to remember. I mean, it, think about 300. Think about 300. In reality... And Miller talked about this, Snyder talked about this. The Spartans were kind of fascist. They were, they, more than kind of, they were pretty much fascist. And that, that irony is in the story, which is part of what makes 300 such a good story, such a good movie. But the movie 300 stands as not a retelling of the actual reality of it but a retelling of a story of that highlights why we should remember it and the value of it. Because remember, since the beginning of time, humans have been mixed. Humans are still mixed to this day. Humans are still mixed to this day. So we celebrate what is worthwhile in a person or a culture or a country or a movement or an organization because that is how we move forward. And that's how we keep improving. Yeah. You can look at, the bad things you did in every game. And you can look at any athlete who's victorious and find mistakes that person makes and find flaws, except for maybe Tom Brady. Well, Patriots, Tom Brady. Don't get me started on Buccaneers, Tom Brady. But that doesn't help us overall. That's not the value of art. So so looking at, looking at V for Vendetta and... Saying, oh, well, you know, too bad he was a theocrat. That doesn't help anything. That doesn't help anything, and that misses the point. Now, as far as my critique, right, my critique of it being solely a left-wing movie, again, that doesn't take away from me saying all these good things about the movie, right? There's a lot of great iconography in the movie. It's a great message. But this is, this is you know, it's, it's based on Alan Moore, right? And this is the problem with Watchmen as well, Right? Very, you know, Alan Moore ultimately is a nihilist. Uh I, I'm not 100% sure of his politics, but I'm sure it leans towards, uh, I'll just say collectivism, right? It's clearly collectivistic, right? But that doesn't mean he doesn't have a lot of good points. And this is sort of the irony of nowadays in America where the right and left agree on a lot, but they don't. So, you know, my problem with V for Vendetta is more the execution of the ideological component that I, I think it could have been more properly reflective of the essentials of reality rather than, you know, just coming from one perspective. Because if you do that, I mean, that's, that's sort of an irony of the movie that they didn't even intend, right? If we're talking about, oh, well, you know, Guy Fox was just another form of theocracy that was fighting against the, the, the church of England's theocracy, Well, then, isn't that the same thing the movie is doing without realizing it? Now, did Alan Moore intend that? I don't know. There's perhaps an argument that Alan Moore, with all of these things, because you look at the nihilism of Watchmen, which is sort of his magnum opus, and we apply that lens to V for Vendetta, was he being equally as nihilistic? And the people who made the movie missed the point? I don't know. I've never read the graphic novel V for Vendetta. That would be interesting. Maybe somebody in the discord can chime in there and let me know, but I I, I've never read it, but you could make that argument about Alan Moore, perhaps with V for vendetta. He was being nihilistic. Although I believe I read at one point that the people who made the movie added the stuff about the, essentially the Rush Limbaugh character and things like that. I mean, it is, I believe it's the Wachowski brothers who did the movie and you know we know what has since happened uh, the Wachowski brothers has since become the Wachowski sisters and we know how Matrix 4 is supposedly completing the transgender allegory so we can sort of trace some things back that way as well and I say it was the Wachowski brothers who made the movie because at that point they they were the Wachowski brothers right they weren't the Wachowski sisters at that point so a lot of interesting things to reflect on in regards to V for Vendetta beyond simply the sort of gotcha of oh hey Guy Fox was a theocrat right a lot of interesting things to reflect on there and that's why if you've ever wondered why on the show and in the discord and on my social media I don't really celebrate that movie I just I don't think it's the best way to go about that and I also I also think that once a year like I don't really celebrate Atlas Shrug Day either Right, I don't post things or anything. I might reshare something, or I think one year I shared excerpts from the sex speech on my Instagram. But I don't really do that because, to me, if something is that important, it should become integrated into your lifestyle and not something to remember once a day. Plus, we have such a dearth of holidays. We have so many holidays nowadays that all of this gets lost in the, in the noise. And I think consistency matters more than... Consistency matters more than simply, you know, saying something one day. So, again, I'm not a big fan of the movie, which is why I don't celebrate it as much. And I think the consistency of sort of like this program, right, this show of, oh, hey, we're going to keep talking about the issues with big government and why we believe people are better at running their own lives and why people have a moral right to run their own lives. I think that is more successful. But speaking of consistency and speaking of integration of art, I was having a conversation with a midsider about the Fountainhead. And she pointed to a scene at the beginning of part four of part four, you know, the part called Howard Rourke, where the, this, the part opens with a scene of a man in his early 20s who just graduated from music school, music college. And he's sort of having existential angst, right? I mean, that's sort of one of the motifs of the Fountainhead: is existential angst for all the characters. And I reread it because I hadn't read it in a while, and that scene had never had never really stuck out to me as something I remembered. I honestly didn't remember it when she brought it up to me, so I reread it because she said it was really impactful on her. And I'm gonna read one paragraph right now. Hopefully, I do better than when I read the uh, the fifth of November there when I read the beginning of that poem, because the end of this paragraph, the end of this paragraph, I think is so powerful. And I think it's such an amazing quote. He had always wanted to write music and he could give no other identity to the thing he sought. If you want to know what it is, he told himself, listen to the first phrases of Tchaikovsky's first concerto or the last movement of Rachmaninoff's Second. Men have not found the words for it, nor the deed, nor the thought, but they have found the music. Let me see that in one single act of man on earth, let me see it made real. Let me see the answer to the promise of the music, not servants, nor those served, not altars and immolations, but the final, the fulfilled, innocent of pain." Don't help me or serve me, but let me see it once because I need it. Don't work for my happiness, my brothers. Show me yours. Show me that it is possible. Show me your achievement, and the knowledge will give me courage for mine. That that paragraph, it sort of blows my mind. And like that's one paragraph in the entire book, right? Which is why it's such an amazing book. But the first thing is the idea that you can really only truly understand the human spirit and human achievement and human happiness through creation and through the experience of the products of those uh, of that creation. And that hold on to that thought, because that'll come back with Army of Thieves, because there's a quote from Army of Thieves that's directly relevant to this, which is how this conversation came about. And now I see the connection by the, uh, the person I was having the conversation with, with the mid I was having the conversation with. And just being able to name that, being able to name that, the idea that certain things haven't been put into words, and to be quite honest, I don't know if they ever can be put into words. We try, we try, but, and this sort of goes to what I'm going to talk about next, it's like watching your team win, or watching the Patriots at the height of Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. I don't know if you can ever ever properly put that into the words and I don't know if you can ever properly experience it besides watching those games live because the second there's the element of time and they're on tape delay or you're watching them on YouTube it's much different than actually experience it because there are certain elements of the human experience that can only ever be experienced right it's the human experience it's not the human metaverse. right I say that very intentionally tongue-in-cheek and then the way the paragraph culminates, this quote at the end is absolutely brilliant. It talks about inspiration, and it talks about what truly motivates human beings. It's, it's very honest. It's very honest in the fact of this is what really motivates human beings. Human beings are not motivated by other people giving them things. Human beings are not motivated by things being done for you. Human beings are really motivated by being inspired and challenged. And what I mean by that is somebody saying you're capable and then showing you what you want to do is possible. Don't work for my happiness, my brothers. Show me yours. Show me that it is possible. Show me your achievement and the knowledge will give me courage for mine. The knowledge of their achievement the knowledge that, hey, somebody achieved. And I can speak personally to that. I mean, that's why if, if people have ever wondered if they're new to the show or, or, or they don't remember, that's why I, I love and celebrate things like Zack Snyder so much and, and Tom Brady and Bill Belichick so much. Because these were the icons. These were the human beings who have shown me. It is possible to actually achieve in this world, despite what's going on. And studying their context and understanding why they got to the point they got to, has been so powerful for me. It has allowed me to achieve what I've achieved, even if it's a small amount, and really achieve the most important thing, which is a level of happiness in my life I never had before. If I look at my teens, if I look at my my 20s, especially, you know, before I moved to California. Right. And ironically, I had to go into the lion's den. To be able to to come out of it alive and come out of it better. Right. Because you would think being in a situation where. it, it It's more conducive, right? There are more people around you who are more connected to reality. It would make it easier for you to survive, but. I don't know, someone like me, I guess I had to investigate that other side. But you know, going into my late 20s, I had to really study and understand these things. And I mean, Brady was around, Belichick was around since before my late 20s, right? I mean, I was watching Belichick and Brady in undergrad. I mean, Tom Brady, Bill Belichick won the first Super Bowl for the Patriots when I was a freshman in college. I had gone from high school I hated I ended up hating my college and in a way they were a lifeline for me. They got me through those years because they gave me something to look forward to. They gave me something to celebrate and they gave me something that inspired me and something that I learned from. They, they were modeling for me how to achieve in this world. And that was something that became a through line in my life. Now, does watching the Patriots now have the same effect no, except for recently, and we'll get to that in, in one second. But it really was. And then, you know, seeing Zack Snyder later and seeing other elements of greatness. I mean, even in high school, right? I, I've i been a huge Eminem fan my whole life because he, in my opinion, is the greatest rapper of all time. You know, I am I was a fan, big fan of Ray Mysterio Jr., who has been called the greatest luchador of all times in professional wrestling. Right. I've always been inspired by these types of people because I think I needed it. And I also think that I was able to look at reality enough and not see it as sort of like a hatred of the good thing. And I think that's really where people get things twisted, where they're not saying they're not holding on to this idea uh, in the fountainhead. The idea that somebody else achieving and reaching greatness is showing you that it can be done. They're not denying you. They're not taking it away from you. Their their success doesn't mean there's less opportunity for success for you. It just means, hey, it can be done. Because if one person can do it, other people can do it. And I think a lot of people, a lot of people miss that. But of course, that's what I'm talking about when I'm saying, you know, oh, the next thing I'm going to talk about is for the last two weeks, for the last two weeks, I have read... Exactly, no Patriots coverage. And I want to say football coverage in general because, like, I read some stuff about Aaron Rodgers. I mean, somebody dropped a video in the Discord. Everyone should check out about Aaron Rodgers talking about the vaccine. And there's some really interesting stuff there. And Aaron Rodgers made some really interesting points. And, you know, he stands uh, in an important position. You know, remember Cole Beasley in the offseason? how he stood, right? People taking this position is super, super important. Super important. So I don't want to say no football coverage at all, but I even wouldn't consider that football coverage. I consider that culture. But one of the things I used to really enjoy over the last 20 years of Belichick and Brady was going to websites and reading the analysis of the games, the roster movements, the practice reports. And then I would take that and that would give me insight as to what's going on in the games. But two things have happened here. Two things have happened here. One, I became absolutely sick of all the conversation, right? Go on Pat's pulpit and read the articles, go on Reddit and read the conversation, go on Twitter and read the conversation, see all the accounts on Instagram And all of the conversation is surface-level conversation. It's surface-level conversation, and it's all just emotional dumping. It's just, here's a place to dump my emotions. And I was engaging with it over and over again, and I was finding that literally for weeks this season, it would get to the point that I was just like, I'm reading this, and I'm making myself feel like I'm more engaged as a fan. I was convincing myself that by doing this, I was becoming a better fan. But what it was really doing was giving me less enjoyment and making me a worse fan because it was biasing me towards interpreting the games and my experience through the lens of other people who are either unhappy or don't know what they're talking about. Let me give you an example. Two of the major things that have been said all season or were said, I don't know, for the last two weeks, what have been said all season was, oh, Bill Belichick's a, a terrible general manager, and he's not a very good coach, and his lack of success without Tom Brady proves that. Likewise, Josh McDaniels, the offensive coordinator, is really being exposed because his play calling is terrible. His play calling is terrible without Tom Brady, and it has been for this season and the last. Now, let me give you my perspective to show how it opposes that, and it shows how that perspective is emotional. My perspective is twofold. One, well, let me say threefold. One, you don't just lose the greatest quarterback of all time and restart quickly. Couple that with the intense roster turnover because of the salary cap situation, and you have to basically reinstall the system. Now there are players like Matthew Slater and Devin McCourty who are still around, and they make that transition smoother, right? Dante Hightower came back this season, but that's also the conversation about last season. Last season, when the team is terrible, that is the last season was the worst I have seen the team since the 1990s pre-Bledsoe. That's how bad the team was. That's how bad the team was, but it was for a couple of reasons, and this is the second thing. This is the second thing one last season was dealing with the salary cap implications of paying Tom Brady and all those receivers to try and get titles over the end of Brady's career with the Patriots, right? I don't think Belichick expected him to still be going this strong at this age as he is in Tampa Bay. Although I would argue, I think being outside the Patriots system is starting to change Tom Brady in a way that makes him not peak Brady. I'm not saying he's still not physically able to go, and I'm still not saying that he he doesn't understand the game as well. I'm just saying the discipline is different with Tampa Bay, and if you get yourself used to a different style of discipline, I mean, look at all the endorsements he's doing now, right? I think Brady's more concerned about brand building. I think that when you get yourself used to that, then it changes who you are, maybe subtly, but it changes who you are. The Patriots have always been focused on growing and learning and changing and adapting. Whereas I think Brady's kind of just relying on what he's used to and his knowledge of the game. And that's starting to catch up with him. He recently threw a pick that was very much like paint against the saints. That was very much like Peyton Manning's pick against the saints in the Super Bowl that lost the game. That Tracy Porter returned him for a pick six, super similar place. Stuff like that never happened before. And we're starting to see more of that, especially with Gronk out, especially with Gronk out, because Brady and Gronk have that same understanding. But that's my point. You take Brady away, you take Gronk away, you put them in salary cap hell. And then, then it's the COVID season where there's no preseason. And we know, we know how long it takes to install a Belichick system on a team every year. Think about it this way. Every year, the Patriots would have their worst season, worst month in September. That's essentially two months of preseason. That's essentially two months of preseason. Every year, they'd have that. Well, you take away preseason. How long does preseason last in a COVID season? Probably the whole year. In that sense, it's not a surprise Brady won the Super Bowl, right? He had the most preparation and he had the best system in place in his mind. And as he took more control of that team, the team succeeded. So it's not a surprise. That's a team that would win in a COVID season. And I'm not trying to minimize Brady's Super Bowl. I mean, that's a huge accomplishment. The fact that he was able to do that. I'm just saying that for the Patriots, if we look at why they didn't do well last year, I don't think it's because Belichick is bad as a general manager. I think he put himself in a bad position because he was trying to maximize assets due to the context of Brady being near the end of his career. And then we had to look at the context of COVID. We have to look at the context of COVID, right? He didn't want Jarrett Stidham, who was having trouble learning the offense and reading defenses. He didn't want him running the team on a shortened season. So he brought in Cam Newton as sort of like, I say he was sort of like a shield. He was a PR shield. So we look at that. And then we look at this season where, who did they bring in? A rookie quarterback. A rookie quarterback who, at this point in the season, by all means, Mac Jones is the best rookie quarterback. Any way you look at it, he's the best rookie quarterback. He is exceeding beyond all of them, succeeding beyond all of them. That makes the development of the early season, which again, as I've said, September is preseason. This is sort of like preseason for Mac Jones' Patriots, and this whole season is. So you have to look at it as a slow developmental thing that's coming out of a context of everything that I just described that previously happened. And the coverage, the coverage I was reading got to the point that nobody was acknowledging that and they would dismiss it. They would dismiss it. Oh, well, that's, you know, that's just an excuse. That's just an excuse. No, you have to measure based upon the context and look at the team now. Look at the team now. Right. Beginning of November, they're four and four. To be able to put yourself in that position with everything you dealt with last year, your rookie quarterback this year, all the new players you signed in the offseason, to be four and four, to be within two games of the division leader who you have two games against, you've put yourself in a good position. Now, I don't know what's going to happen today, right? You guys are listening to this on a Monday. I'm recording on a Sunday. I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe they lose today. To the Panthers they might it's possible I don't know I do I think they will no but even if they lose they're still four and five and they're still competitive going into the second half of the season and that's really that's really what there is to watch for with your team you want your team to be competitive and play meaningful games into the back end of the season and as long as they can keep playing meaningful games into the back end of the season, I will consider Belichick a success, McDaniels a success, and the season a success. And I didn't want to take that away. I didn't want to take that away, and I didn't want to not look at it from that perspective because of the things that were going on, right? The idea that, oh, Brady just leaves, and you know the salary cap is the way it is, and that's fine. And the COVID season, things are, you know, That's fine, and Mac Jones is a rookie, and that's fine. The idea that they're supposed to be exactly the same way as they were during the entire 20-year dynasty, when that was the greatest coach of all time paired with the greatest player of all time, do I expect in five years a high level of success with this team because of how Mac Jones seems to be? Yes, I expect that. Now, Mac Jones could wash out in two years, and then we'd have to restart and figure it out. But even if, let's suppose he doesn't, I don't expect the same level of success as with Brady. That's That would be irrational. But people emotionally expect that, and then that becomes the coverage. And to me, that is all sports coverage nowadays. It's all... I mean, watch like American Ninja Warrior, right? Every video package in American Ninja Warrior is all these personal, emotional stories. And those things are important, but they shouldn't be made the forefront of it. What should be the forefront of it is... Who is this athlete? How does this athlete attack the course? And how does this athlete succeed physically and intellectually on the course? And how do the emotions follow from that and contribute to that? But instead it's, oh, you should support this person because their mom died of cancer. And that becomes the forefront of it. And, and that's the thing. When I look at all these conversations – And I don't want to say it's just an age thing. I really don't. But maybe it is. Maybe this is getting old. Maybe this is getting old. Maybe this is I watched for 20 years and I learned. But that was the main thing. It literally got to the point that I would be reading all this coverage, reading all this conversation, you know, on Reddit, on Pat's Pulpit, on CBS News, on NBC News. And I'd be like, did no one learn anything from 20 years of Brady and Belichick? Of that whole dynasty, did no one learn anything about football and how football works and how the game operates and how being a successful organization works? And I would be like that, and I'd be. Like, it got to the point that I realized I knew more about the game and how to analyze it than all of these people talking about it online. And again, now we have conversation that I always talk about here in the midside. Talk about the relationship between reality and online and what online has done in the negative sense, right? I always say, you know, I love online conversation. I love the, the ability, not conversation. I love the ability. It provides us to have all the information at the, at our fingertips. We can have more information than ever in the history of the world. But then I say, look at what we've done with it and look at the kind of information we are providing. And there are very few places nowadays that, I actually want to read analysis. I mean, honestly, I have looked at Mike Reese's Twitter. I stopped reading Mike Reese because he works for ESPN, and I stopped reading him during the gate times. But when you read his Twitter, all he does is he puts in who's at practice, he puts in what moves have been made personnel-wise, and he talks about things players say at press conferences. Combine that with what the Patriots post on their website, their own, like, Hey, this is what's going on with the team. And that's all the information I need nowadays. I need informational reporting. I don't need analytical because the analysis is so bad. And then I I honestly, I found who was reading, not who's reading, who is writing and running Pat's pulpit. I looked into, I Googled one of the main authors and to find out the guy lives in Austria and he never grew up around football at all. So this is just somebody who, you know, it's awesome that he fell in love with the Patriots because of how great they were, but you're really telling me that's the best person who's able to write for that website, and that's the analysis we're supposed to agree with? He's literally looking at everything from a second-handed standpoint because he's seeing everything filtered through what he's reading on the internet. He's not primarily considering the game, and that's my real problem with all of the coverage and everything, is everything is second-handed. Everything is second-handed. That's what I've said before about Instagram accounts. I hate these Instagram meme accounts that are posting memes while the games are going on. You're not really a fan then because you're not really engaging. You're not really engaging with the game. You're not really engaging with the game. And that's going to wrap into my review of Army of Army of Thieves. But first of all, I want to talk about Uh, just something that I thought was ridiculous and this will just be a small thing. So I got a letter from the, from the U S census, right? I got a letter from the U S census and they were like, you have to fill out this form. So I clicked online to go to it and you click on it. And first of all, I want to be clear that they said you have to fill this out, right? It's, it's legally required that you fill this out. So I clicked on that and I was like, okay, this will take two minutes. And it says, 40 minutes this survey will take you an estimated time of 40 minutes i don't understand how the federal government can legally give me homework essentially first of all maybe i need to look into what the punishment would be but the idea that they can be like oh you have to fill out this form with the possible punishment of law if you don't and then the question's the questions are all just demographic and financial issue. I mean, they asked me, right, who lives at our place, right, who lives at our address. And then there was a, ra- a race one, right. And what I found interesting was it asked me what my race was. And then one of the boxes you can check is white. And then it's wants you to put in the in the box, you know, I had to put Italian and Polish. And then, you know, it says black or African-American. And once you put in the box, you know, this is what it says. African-American, Jamaican, Haitian, Nigerian, Ethiopia, Somali. It says Somali. I thought it was Somalian, but apparently it's Somali, right? Then it says American Ingl- Indian or Alaska Native, and under it it names all the different tribes, right? Navajo Nation, Blackfeet Tribe, Mayan, Aztec, etc. But then it lists as separate checkboxes Chinese, Filipino, Asian, Indian, which, by the way, I've never heard... The term Asian Indian before apparently that's a that that push has been successful to acknowledge Indians as being part of Asia. Yes, we understand that the country of India is in Asia, but you, your country is so populous. The country of India is so populous that we distinguish and use a more precise term. We're not being I'm not being oppressive towards people from India by saying they're Indian and not calling them Asian. Because I'm being more precise because their population is so large that you are more distinct as a culture and as an ethnic group. Anyway, Chinese, Filipino, Asian, Indian, Vietnamese, Korean, Japanese. And then there's an other Asian box, which this one's fun. The first one they list under that is Pakistani. So... Pakistani doesn't go under the Asian Indian category, even though Pakistan and India have a history as far as that country splitting away from the other country. Right. But they're, they're listed under the same thing as other Asian with Pakistani, Cambodian, Hmong. So think about how arbitrary all this stuff is. And then legally by law, I have to answer these boxes, answer these questions and check these boxes. And then likewise, in the survey, they literally they asked me a question, right? This was the this was the funniest part to me. One question was, has Justin M. gotten married in the, the last 12 months? So of course, I clicked yes. The immediate next question was, has Justin M. become a widow widower in the last 12 months? What they must think I had a hell of a 12 months. Imagine somebody clicks yes to both of those. Like, do they send like a fruit basket to you if you, if you click yes to both of those? I don't know. This whole thing is insane. And then it says at the end, thank you for completing the American Community Survey. Uh, your answers have been submitted to the U.S. Census Bureau. So now they know how much I make, what races myself and my wife are. Uh, and I actually posted that on Instagram, and then I tagged their Instagram account. And I said, thanks for wasting my time. So I was legally required by the U.S. federal government to waste my time. I don't know how that's going to help them. I mean, I guess they're going to say, oh, well, knowing the demographics and— You know, how much money everyone makes helps us socially engineer society better. I don't want you to socially engineer society. I want you to leave me alone. All right. The final thing I want to talk about is the movie Army of Thieves. Army of Thieves came out about a week ago on Netflix. It's the prequel to the prequel. Like it's the thing before you write the prequel to Army of the Dead It's about Ludwig Dieter, and that's actually not his real name. His real name is Sebastian. So it's about Ludwig Dieter and how he came to be in Vegas and came to crack the safe in Army of the Dead. Essentially, it follows his journey into the heist world. And in the same way, Army of the Dead is like a quasi-meta zombie movie, this is a quasi-meta... Heist movie. So if you've ever seen the episode of Rick and Morty where they talk about the heist and the double crossing and everything, uh, this kind of plays with the same elements. There's one scene where they say, "Okay, this is the first heist we're going to do. And it's going to be so easy that you know how normally when they say what's going to happen and they do a flash forward in the movie and then something goes wrong, it's actually going to be the flash forward is what happens. And then the flash forward is exactly what happens. It goes exactly as planned. So they're playing with all these tropes and everything. And in it, you learn his name is Sebastian, and you learn why he's in Vegas and why uh, he wants to crack all the safes. Uh, the the neat thing about it is, you know, he 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 starts out as just he's a YouTuber with no views. He's a YouTuber with no vo- views talking about. Uh, Wagner, Wagner, however you want to say it, who is this great locksmith, this great designer of safes, and somebody finds him and watches his video and tells him to show up at a place, and it's the the woman who gets him involved in all the safe cracking. So it's really cool to see, you know, I think very intentionally Snyder designed a character and designed a part of his world that he's creating here for Netflix that reflects parts of his audience and reflects major parts of his audience. Cause I'm not going to lie. Like I identified with that side of Dieter and I identified with the idea of here's all this knowledge I have and this experience I have. Like he would literally practice cracking these type of safes on his own. And he went completely unacknowledged and unknown. So it's sort of what relevant to the conversation about what I was saying about the Patriots, like It sounds insane what I'm saying, but these type of people are out there. So I appreciated that. I especially appreciated it as it got to the end of the movie. So as he cracks the final safe, he talks to the woman who got him involved. And as he's about to open it up, he says something. And this is what he says. One thought that I have, I'm going to restart it. One thought that I have not been able to cast out of my mind is how sad it is that this great man, he devoted his life to this work. Nobody ever really appreciated it or even understood his genius. Because in order to understand the work, you must engage with it. And until now, with Wagner's ring cycle, nobody could. The ring cycle is the four safes that he is seeking to crack he cracks three of them in the movie, and then he cracks the fourth in Army of the Dead. And this this quote stood out to me. Not because of the sadness element of it, right? The sadness element seems to point to like a negative sense of life and this tragic sense of the world. But really what he talks about is the moment he is having. This moment really... this quote is really about the moment he has with the art with the art. You know, when he cracks the safe, when he opens it, he has a moment of joy that nobody else has had. And he thinks about how sad it is that nobody else has engaged with it on this level. And I just think of everything I've said about Zack Snyder, what I just said about Tom Brady and the Patriots, but especially for this to be in a movie that Zack Snyder wrote the story for that he produced it just speaks volumes to me because as I've said, I think so many people do not really engage with his works of art, do not truly understand them. And that's really what this is about. Cause at the end of the quote, in order to understand the work, you must engage with it. And until now with Wagner's ring cycle, nobody could. Well, literally him engaging Dieter, engaging with Sebastian as his name is in the movie, engaging with the, The locks is literally the physical concrete process of hacking these safes right now. When you're analyzing a movie, it's the same thing. You are abstractly unlocking, decoding, breaking into the safe to figure out what's going on. This metaphor has to be intentional and is not lost on me at all. But I think it's lost on a lot of people. You literally have to use your mind, your psychology, your ideas, your emotions, and engage with art in the same way. The thing that makes this movie so interesting, and which makes it a bromantic movie for me, is that Dieter engages with the safes as art. So there's two things going on here. There's all the people who are just engaging with this movie, or not this movie, this safe. Everything is purely pragmatic. Oh, well, there's the uh, the Interpol characters who are trying to stop them on a purely pragmatic level. And they can't because they're not thinking in the way that Dieter and the other members of his crew are thinking because they're thinking on a more artistic level. And part of the reason I don't rate this movie so romantic is some of these other characters are sort of underdeveloped in this way, especially the Interpol character he just sort of shows up at one point and he's the stereotypical bumbling police agent bubbling uh agent who's trying to capture these people it's surely intentional but uh, it would have been nice to see him more developed although perhaps the point is he is bumbling but then other members of Dieter's crew don't think on this level too it's purely pragmatic at a certain point the Brad Cage character is like oh, well, we've already got enough money. We don't need to to hack the third safe, to crack the third safe. And Dieter, and I don't remember the girl's name, she's like, no, we need to complete the cycle. It's about engaging with the work. She doesn't say those words directly. So this movie is very much about that. And it's very much worth watching for that reason. And I think it really puts into context how... Snyder wants you to look at his works and how he considers art in general. Cause though he did not direct this movie, you can very much tell it, you know, it has a Stone Quarry logo in the front. You can tell it's his movie. You can tell it's his movie. You can tell it's in his universe, and it's definitely worth watching. It's it's on the level of Army of the Dead. They're they're pretty much about the same, which is what you want. Which is what you want in a in a universe. You want all the movies to be pretty similar in quality. So check it out. Uh, I'll be checking out Red Notice soon. Maybe that's my next review. I'm not sure, but Army of the Dead, definitely a bromantic... Sorry, Army of Thieves, definitely a bromantic movie worth checking out. All right, that's all I have for you guys today. I appreciate you listening, because as always, if you didn't listen, this would just be me talking into the corner of my closet like a crazy person. Uh, It still is me doing that, but it just makes me feel a little bit less crazy, because I know someone's listening. If you want to support the show, you can do so by going to midside.com slash store. You can buy any of the t-shirts there. Somebody uh, picked up a false staccato tee, which is awesome. Thank you to whoever bought that. You can also buy my book, com slash the cut. It's based on a true story about the behind the scenes of the Justice League production. Again, I don't know anything. I just did research and I speculated and I did what I thought would be an interesting story to mythologize it. And there are uh, huge conversations about Myth and Army of Thieves. Uh, There's always Patreon and Locals. Patreon and Locals. Patreon is per episode. Locals is per month. We accept any and all contributions, including affirmations. TheMidside.com slash Patreon. TheMidside.com slash Locals. And as always, you can tell a friend. This concludes your journey into The Midside. I'm Justin Emlesniewski reminding you, That if things get tough, take a step back and witness the farce.